Radio 4 presents the Mark Steele Lecture, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Hannibal. The life of Hannibal is centred around tragedy. And the main tragedy is that he led 100,000 people and a herd of elephants across the Alps to fight the world's greatest empire. And yet when most people heard that introduction, they must have thought, oh, he's doing that bloke with a mask who went... <laughs> Oh, the word Hannibal is so associated with that character now, even people who listen to the whole programme will then be confused and think he was chased out of Italy by Jodie Foster. <laughs> even in some of the serious history books, it's suggested that Hannibal fed his troops on the march by getting them to eat the soldiers who died on the way. And I read this and I thought, no, there's no evidence for this at all. The only reason that you think he was a cannibal is because his name was Hannibal <laughs> and it's rhymes. You might as well say, you know how Julius Caesar funded his navy selling freezers? <laughs> That's why he lost out to Brutus. He was flogging computers. <laughs> Moved with the times, you see. But before Hannibal lecture, the name Hannibal just meant the bloke who went to war using elephants. Now, Hannibal is still recognised as one of the greatest generals of all time. General Patton believed himself to be the reincarnation of Hannibal. Storming Norman Schwarzkopf of the Gulf War claimed to be a general in the tradition of Hannibal, which you can understand, because if instead of marching elephants across the Alps, Hannibal had got pilots to fly elephants in Vulcan bombers and then dropped them from 20,000 feet, they'd be almost identical, wouldn't they? <laughs> Hannibal's genius as a warrior was connected to his understanding of the true grime of war. He wouldn't have been able to imagine how a war could be run from a building on the other side of the world by a president so disconnected from reality he could say, we must get tough with the suicide bombers. <laughs> Which suggests there's one or two of the more fundamental aspects of suicide bombing that he hasn't quite grasped. <laughs> And what would Hannibal have made of the nonsense when Bush said, we have tightened the noose around Bin Laden by cancelling his bank account? <laughs> and I thought, oh right, so up until today he was merrily wandering along to the cash point, was he? <laughs> and getting letters from his branch saying, congratulations Mr Bunluden, you've been entered into our grand prize draw. <laughs> Next they'll say, we have even further tightened the noose around his neck, we've cancelled his blockbuster video card. <laughs> Hannibal was born in the town of Carthage, in what is now Tunisia, in North Africa, in 247 BC. And Carthage had been established about 500 years earlier by Phoenicians from the middle of the Arab world. Which straight away calls into question one side of him, because in almost every image you see of Hannibal, he's white. Which is just ridiculous! He was from North Africa! It's as ridiculous as if there was a film in a hundred years' time about Winston Churchill, in which he kept going, I and I will mush him up on them beach. <laughs> The government of Carthage was based on an aristocracy, but the wealthy could buy their way into the government, as it was believed that only a rich man could be a good ruler. The Romans at that time had a more advanced political system, run by an aristocracy, with a law that no one could take up a political post unless they'd taken part in ten campaigns with the army. And that would be worth bringing in now, wouldn't it? Just so you could see Prescott trying to clamber across an assault course. <laughs> I'm bloody knackered, can't I go under and me jag? <laughs> The Romans had also built the beginnings of an empire, and like the Carthaginian one, it was built on slavery. The only way for an empire to grow in strength, or in wealth, was to increase the number of slaves under its control so that both empires were forced to go on colonising land, including the island of Sicily, that sat in the middle of the two. In 264 BC, Sicily, at that time ruled by Carthage, was invaded by Rome. 
And that set off the first Punic War, as it was known. And this war went on for 20 years. And one thing that may have been holding back the Roman military machine was their dependence on omens. For example, in 249 BC, they built a fleet of 200 ships. But just before the battle they'd been designed for, the consul Appius Claudius Pulcher was informed the battle couldn't take place because the sacred chickens in a golden cage were refusing to eat. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> you can't help wondering whether the chickens knew what they were doing. <laughs> They're going, here, this will balls them up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, I'm just not hungry today. <laughs> In which case, that would be the last case of chickens displaying more intelligence than the humans looking after them until the Big Brother house. <laughs> the Romans defeated the Carthaginians. From now on, their colonies would be incorporated into a greater Rome. And one general in particular was bitter about the defeat, a general called Hamilcar. And Hamilcar had three sons, of which he'd named one Hannibal. When Hannibal was nine, Hamilcar took Hannibal by the hand, led him to an altar and placed his other hand on a sacrificial offering of a burnt goat and then got his son to declare an oath that he would be the declared enemy of the Roman people. And then an argument broke out as to whether Carthage should accept their humiliation or prepare another war. And Hamilcar proposed a plan on the side of war. He was going to take an army across Europe. And Hamilcar took the nine-year-old Hannibal on the trip, as well as his son-in-law, Hasdrubal the Handsome. Which is either a great name for a warrior, or he was a wrestler. <laughs> By the time they left, Hannibal had already learnt Greek, which in itself indicates how at that time empires looked at the world differently to modern ones. There was no suggestion that the Carthaginians were a superior race. Even when they invaded a nation and made the people into slaves, they often put the captured generals and leaders into senior positions in their own army and government. Britain's lost its empire now, but we'd still never get our kids to learn Greek because other people should learn English. We can meet a Dutch bloke who speaks 55 languages, but we still think we're cleverer than he is because he speaks English with a slight Dutch accent. <laughs> if a group of English people are in France and one person says, oh well, merci beaucoup then, all the others will go, ooh, you've picked up the lingo. <laughs> So, Hamilcar and his men marched along the coast of North Africa with a few ships carrying supplies going next to them towards the Straits of Gibraltar. And from there they crossed to Spain and they set up the town of New Carthage, which you can't hear now without imagining them all going, this time a sensible Carthage, where we're not afraid to attract the talents of big business by selling off the elephants <laughs> to a public-private partnership. Throughout this time, the young Hannibal is supposed to have insisted on sleeping outdoors with the soldiers refusing any favours. And eventually, inevitably, during a battle with one of the Spanish tribes, his father Hamilcar was killed. And the army was then taken over by Hasdrubal the Handsome. By 221 BC, the Carthaginians had established themselves across the eastern coast of Spain when Hasdrubal the Handsome was murdered. And so at the age of 26, Hannibal automatically took command of the army. Hannibal's army was made up mostly of mercenaries from North Africa, from Gaul and from Spain, and from around the Atlas Mountains he found his elephants. Elephants had been used in battles before, usually for fighting, but also to reap havoc in the enemy, which of course they would, especially if the enemy had never seen an elephant before. You could be the best general in the world and you would still think, well now there's something I didn't account for. <laughs> A herd of rampaging grey things with ten-foot-long noses. <laughs> the elephants would scatter the opposition and then the infantry would march in, each armed with swords and shields in groups of 4,000. 
With the forces ready, Hannibal had to decide when to make his move. By now, the Romans had worked out that the Carthaginians were there, as they themselves, the Romans, had established a route north of the Pyrenees on the way to Cornwall, where they went to get their tin. Which is worth considering this, isn't it? They needed some tin, so they walked to Cornwall. From Rome. <laughs> now, if most people were desperate for food, if the car was broken, they'd say, oh, I'd better starve to death then. I'm not walking all the way to cost cutters in this drizzle. <laughs> Similarly, Hannibal had sent spies to Italy and back for information, and he had to plan how he would feed his army as they trekked across Europe. So Hannibal marched over the Pyrenees and on towards the Alps, 100,000 people in a line six miles long, devouring every edible plant and animal in its way. Then Hannibal came up against his first major obstacle of how to cross the River Rhone. Apart from the difficulty of getting the army and its supplies, Hannibal had another problem, which was how to get his elephants across the river. So the engineers built these rafts and they covered them in mud to try and trick the elephants that they were an extra bit of path. <laughs> but the elephants were still having none of it. And then one of the riders tried pushing the elephant, which must be one of the most desperate acts that a human <laughs> being can engage in. That's the sort of thing your boss would come up with, isn't it? <laughs> Have you tried pushing the elephant? <laughs> this pushing sent the elephant crazy, and so it chased the rider into the water, and then in panic, all the other elephants jumped onto the rafts, which got them away from the bank, but then as soon as the elephants realised they were adrift in the river, they went berserk and capsized the rafts and managed to drown all their riders. <laughs> Even having gone through this, there were thousands of the soldiers who, when they realised Hannibal was taking them to the Alps, just packed up and went home. The rest must have panicked when they got there, because at the start of the Alps, Hannibal had to assemble his men and make a speech that went... What sudden panic is this that has entered your hearts? What do you think the Alps are? No part of them touches the sky. How do you think the tribes that live there got there? Do you think they flew over the Alps? Sarcastic bastard, wasn't he? <laughs> the next problem was with the savages who lived there. When they saw Hannibal's army, they waited for it to get to a passage where the entire force was on a long, thin ledge in single file, and then they rolled boulders onto them. Now, the biggest problem here was stopping the elephants from falling over the side, and by now, the rest of the army must have been feeling the way you would if you went interrailing around Europe with a mate who insisted on taking their double base. <laughs> Everyone must have been muttering, bloody elephants. Why couldn't we just leave them at home once? <laughs> Especially as the elephants started to panic, and the one thing I imagine you could do without when you're 10,000 feet up on a thin ledge with savages rolling boulders at you is a mental elephant. <laughs> and then a tribe of Celts who were pretending to be their guides ambushed them. Now, Hannibal's men must have thought they were part of a computer game. They were probably all going, Ah, level four, the Celts. We can only defeat these by capturing the golden shield of Argos. <laughs> They fought off the Celts, but the only way out from the valley was by climbing over the highest pass in the whole mountain range. And their supplies had been captured to the point that troops were now dying of starvation. And once again they were stuck on a thin ledge, but this time it was covered in ice. So there were several avalanches and anyone who slipped from the path was just left to die in the snow. At the end of the ledge they ran into an unpassable hill of boulders that had followed a landslide. So the whole army collected wood to make a fire that could crack the boulders. But this didn't work until someone added the crucial ingredient of their wine, which was apparently so rancid that once it was poured onto the rocks, they were easy to crack. <laughs> what the hell was in that? <laughs> Even winos don't drink stuff that cracks rocks. 
Hey, so I bet some of this wine sneaked its way onto one of them Ponzi food programmes where they sat around going, hmm, fruity but apocalyptic. <laughs> 100,000 men had set off from Spain, about 60,000 had ventured onto the Alps, and as they came out of the pass, they'd been reduced to an army of 26,000. But all 37 elephants were alive and well. Now the Carthaginians were in Italy and the plan was to persuade as many towns as they could to come over to their side. The Romans were hated and most people would welcome anyone who would overthrow them. It's like when people in Kabul welcomed the overthrow of the Taliban, even though the Americans put General Dostum in charge, who a few years earlier had been running a sex slave market in the town. The typical comment at the time was the reporter who said of General Dostum... Yes, but everyone's got their dirt if you look for it. <laughs> Which is fair enough. I mean, some of us have had secret affairs or fiddled our expenses, and some of us have run sex slave markets. We're none of us squeaky clean, are we? <laughs> the first boost for Hannibal after arriving in Italy was an army of 2,000 Gauls declaring their support for him. And Hannibal had an unusual way of thanking them. The pre-battle entertainment on the night before the first battle with the Romans was organised gladiator contests between the Gauls that had been captured in the Alps. Each winner would get a horse and freedom, and the loser could be described as going away with nothing. <laughs> Maybe as he was about to be speared, they even showed him the horse and went, this is what you could have won. <laughs> the next morning... Hannibal ordered a raid on the edge of the Roman army, which was under the command of Sepramonius. The Romans were annihilated, and for the first time, the Italians were forced to accept the strength of the opposition that they'd underrated. Although what they probably did was blame the referee and claim the battle was rigged. <laughs> the Romans were still confident, as you can tell from the omens that were recorded in Rome that winter. According to the Roman historian Livy... A six-month-old baby shouted victory in the vegetable market. In the cattle market, an ox walked up three flights of stairs and when the lodgers screamed, it was so frightened it jumped out of the window. Shapes like shining ships appeared in the sky. At Lavinium, a spear moved of its own accord. And in Gaul, a wolf pulled a sentry's sword out of its sheath and ran off with it. So maybe that's the way the government should decide when we can join the Euro. <laughs> Instead of these five economic tests, as soon as there's a talking baby, a moving spear, a shining ship, a wolf with a sword and a cow jumping out of a window, we're in. <laughs> Being the away team, in effect, Hannibal had a constant problem of how to feed and supply his army. And through his first winter in Italy, they'd stayed in the mountains in the north, freezing and starving, so much so that all except one of his elephants then died. And then came the Battle of Lake Tresimene, which was so ferocious that neither side apparently noticed that while the battle was taking place, there had been a major earthquake. <laughs> Hannibal's victory, though, was so emphatic that the commander of the Roman army, Flaminius, was killed and his body was never found. But all this now allowed Hannibal to advance to the major town of Cannae, where Hannibal played another psychological trick on the Romans. So there was a standard method for fighting these battles, with the infantry packed tight together and marching forward, so that as the two sides met, the one with the most and the best fighters would win. But at the Battle of Cannae, Hannibal transformed military thinking by making tactics the crucial element. He went into battle with only a few soldiers in the middle and thousands on either side, mostly hidden. So the Romans marched forward into an empty space and thought that they were winning easily. But then, of course, they got clouted from either side. Not only that, but the Carthaginians squashed the Romans so close together in the middle that they couldn't move their arms. See, all these people argue about who might be the modern version of the Carthaginians, but the people with the best claim must be Great Northeastern Railways. <laughs>
The Roman army had begun the battle with 87,000 soldiers, but almost 50,000 were killed. And almost every family in Rome had someone killed. And now the panic reached a new level. It became illegal to say the word peace in the city. Wailing and weeping was banned, except for women crying in public. After one battle, 4,000 soldiers who were judged to have shown insufficient courage were sentenced to eat their evening meal while standing up. <laughs> they must have felt like a class of kids with a supply teacher. <laughs> Halfway through the battle, they were probably putting their hands up and going, Mr Varrow, the old commander usually lets us go home early on a Friday. <laughs> But Hannibal did get a boost when the Sicilian town of Syracuse declared war on Rome. So the Romans laid siege to the place, but one of the most awkward people they had to defeat was Archimedes, the mathematician who cried Eureka in the bath, who lived there in Syracuse. According to the Roman historian Plutarch, Archimedes worked out the exact angles for launching rocks and darts from towers to cause maximum damage. So he was put in charge of the defence of the city, which must surely be the only time ever that a load of really hard bastards have gone... Oh, no, not him. He's really good at maths. <laughs> Archimedes built platforms from which boulders could be dropped onto the Roman ships at exactly the right angle to make them sink. When the Romans built a tower to climb into the city wall, Archimedes worked out its weak point and destroyed it. And he designed an enormous system of concave mirrors, which could be aimed at Roman ships to concentrate the sun's rays and set them on fire. See, this is how to get kids interested in maths. <laughs> Sod the numeracy hour. Instead of the times tables, he'd have had them all going, Launch all your darts at an obtuse angle, angle of 64 degrees and kill all the Romans. Make sure your mirrors are perpendicular to Roman sailors, then burn them to death. <laughs> Levers were poked out from holes along the wall that would swing round and drop boulders on anyone climbing up. And Livy said, The Roman soldiers, bold as they were, were so daunted by these strange and irresistible devices that if they saw so much as a rope or a stick hanging or projecting from a wall, they would turn and run, crying, Archimedes is going to get us! <laughs> Eventually, it took four Roman legions to subdue the place. They attacked it after receiving information that the whole town had been celebrating the festival of Artemis for three days and were completely drunk. The Roman commander gave instructions to spare Archimedes, but when a soldier found him, he shouted at him to surrender, but Archimedes ignored him and carried on working out a geometry problem with his finger in some dust. <laughs> so the Roman killed him. <laughs> Hannibal was forced to spend the next few years loitering through Italy, but he retained his genius for psychological warfare. In one battle, the Romans had blockaded his ships in a harbour. He got his army to attach wheels onto the ships, then dragged the ships through the streets and then launched them from a different harbour to attack the Roman garrison from behind. <laughs> going to war with Hannibal must have been like going to war with David Blaine. <laughs> Even as you were being set on fire, the soldiers must have been going, How the bloody hell did he do that? <laughs> And Hannibal scored the success of defeating one of the most respected Roman commanders, Marcellus, who was killed in the battle. And then Hannibal assembled his troops and buried Marcellus, the enemy commander, with full military honours. Because that was how they saw their battles, as purely military. What would Hannibal make of the concept now that if the other side fires back at all, there's outrage? Bin Laden only has to make a video. How dare he? <laughs> and 
And it was professionally made, of course it was professionally made. He's the leader of the enemy. You don't expect him to make one on a camcorder where his beard gets caught in a mangle and he sends it to Jeremy Beadle. <laughs> After seven years of slowly wearing down Hannibal's army, the Romans inflicted a huge blow. Hannibal's brother was himself crossing the Alps with an army to support Hannibal. Now, the first military mistake that may have been made here was that his brother's name was Hasdrubal the Bald. What's that going to do for the poor bloke's self-esteem? <laughs> Granted, handsome had already gone, but even something neutral like perpendicular would have sounded more fearsome than bald. <laughs> but whatever the reason, his messengers were captured and the Romans discovered the route that Hasdrubal the Bald was using. And so the Romans sent a force to meet him and they did what anyone would do in the heat of the moment. They massacred his army and chopped off Hasdrubal the Bald's head. They then sent it on horseback to Hannibal's camp, where a rider tossed his brother's head into Hannibal's lap. And several books that record this incident report that when he saw his brother's head, Hannibal said, I see there the fate of Carthage. Did he cobbler say that? I know he was Hannibal, but he went, Wah! like anyone else. <laughs> From this position, the Romans were able to send an army to Spain and undermine Carthage by attacking their empire. And under the Roman commander Scipio, the Romans landed an army in Africa. Hannibal sent a message to Scipio that the two commanders should meet. So after 15 years of war, the two leaders met on a hill where, according to Livy, Mutual admiration struck them dumb and they looked at each other in silence. Maybe that's what foreign leaders think when they have a summit with George Bush. <laughs> dumb silence must be struck with admiration, I suppose. Eventually, Scipio demanded surrender, but Hannibal refused, and so the war continued, with thousands of Carthaginians getting massacred, until Carthage had to agree to dismantle its navy and pay damages that would involve every wealthy citizen making enormous payments for the next 50 years. At the Senate meeting, where the first payment had to be made, several senators began weeping, at which point Hannibal caused a scandal by bursting out laughing and saying, <laughs> The time for weeping was when our arms and ships were taken. But over the next ten years, Carthage not only kept up its payments to Rome, it paid off its entire debt in half the time expected, when they were probably besieged with letters asking if they fancied taking out another loan. <laughs> Throughout this time, the Romans didn't trust Hannibal, and they suspected him of planning another war, this time attacking Roman colonies in Asia. Because when two empires try to expand, eventually they collide. The difference then was that they didn't pretend. They just said, we want to rule here because we're Rome and you're not, so get out or we'll kill you all. Now they make out it's about decency. Like when Blair and Bush said one of their reasons for bombing Afghanistan was the Taliban had a dreadful record on women's rights. Unlike our allies Saudi Arabia, of course, which is a veritable cauldron of modern feminism. <laughs> You can hardly walk down Riyadh High Street for stalls selling T-shirts saying a woman without a man is like a camel without a bicycle. <laughs> a leader in Asia called Antiochus promised Hannibal an army of 10,000 men and soon the fighting started all over again. And I wonder if at any point Hannibal ever thought, <sighs> You know, what I could do with is a couple of quiet weeks relaxing in the Cotswolds. <laughs> Eventually Hannibal ended up in Crete, where the Romans attacked the Cretans. The Cretans, under Hannibal's advice, ran towards the Roman ships carrying pots, which apparently caused some laughter amongst the Romans until the Cretans threw the pots and the Romans discovered that they were full of poisonous snakes. <laughs> which one historian has described as... The first example of biological warfare. 
Maybe the Romans spent the next 15 years sending in snake inspectors, <laughs> saying if we don't stop them now, in a couple of years they could have a scorpion of mass destruction. <laughs> The Romans were extending their empire through Asia and the Roman Senate ordered Hannibal's capture. And eventually, in 183 BC, at the age of 64, running out of places to hide, Hannibal decided the only way to elude the Romans was to take poison, saying, Let us now put an end to the great anxiety of the Romans. And now every military school pays respect to Hannibal for his guile and his flexibility and his use of psychology. What they should also take note of is that he was a warmonger who understood the true horror of war because he lived it. When he ordered his men to charge, he knew that meant to face men determined to stick spears and arrows through their middle and try to do the same to them. Everyone understood that war was human. Now there's a pretense that as we're the good guys, we do war cleanly. Because it's traded in by politicians and accountants who assure you their arms dealing is all done in good taste. Like when they said they were surprised the Israelis had used British Centurion tanks against the Palestinians. Contrary to their assurances. What did they think the Israelis were going to use a tank for? Rolling loads of pastry at once? <laughs> Up until the 20th century, 90% of victims in war were military, and in the last 100 years, 90% of the victims have been civilian. Hannibal could never have imagined a war, say like Vietnam, involving the mass bombing of civilians. And always there's the pretense of laser-guided accuracy, so only the bad guys get hurt. So they promised this at the start of the bombing of Yugoslavia, and then the same day they admitted... One of our bombs has landed in Bulgaria. <laughs> and I thought then, call me a perfectionist. <laughs> Shouldn't laser-guided accuracy involve hitting the right country? <laughs> See, this makes them considerably less accurate than Hannibal, really, because there's no record of him arriving on an elephant and saying, We're here! Oh, bollocks, this is Austria. <laughs> Similarly, the Americans promised they'd catch Bin Laden because they had satellites so accurate they could... Pinpoint a cigarette. The only thing that let them down was Bin Laden doesn't smoke. <laughs> War has now become so dehumanised, when any actual fighting needs doing, they get someone else to do that. Who's going to take Afghanistan for us? Ah, this lot. The Northern Alliance. They didn't even know who they were. They probably thought they were a building society. <laughs> and that now Bin Laden's bank account's frozen, they'll ring him up every morning from a call centre at ten past eight. That'll smoke him out. <laughs> Hello, Mr Bin Laden, it's Tina here for the Northern Alliance. Your account's been frozen, you're going to have to make a payment. <laughs> As the centuries unfolded after the wars between Rome and Carthage, it became clear how high the stakes had been. Eventually, the Romans marched into Carthage and they burnt the whole place to the ground and then spread salt throughout the entire area so that nothing could grow at all. So now you can't even go to Carthage, as there's no such place. But the Romans could go on to become the world's ruling empire for the next few hundred years. The only thing that could have made it even worse for Carthage was if the Romans had pretended they were doing it for a moral purpose. Welcome back. It's day 5106 in the War on Elephants. Commander Scipio has hailed the liberation of Carthage a total success and said he hopes that now the city no longer exists, its citizens can at last begin a new era of peace and prosperity. Gillian. Thank you, Bert. Well, it now seems the most likely explanation for the annihilation of the city is that Carthaginian leaders carried it out themselves, murdering themselves in a mass frenzy in order to make propaganda against the Romans. 
hands. And there is now irrefutable evidence that the evil and paranoid dictator Hannibal was indeed a cannibal. And that comes from a report from the Rome Institute of Words That Rhyme. That's all from us. Good night. Steel Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Mel Hudson and Martin Heider. The producer was Lucy Armitage.